tonight we'll be continuing in um, the series we started a few weeks ago, which just to briefly remind you is to um, is to look at the way the Bible progressively and organically contains the self-revelation of God, what God reveals about Himself. And the whole purpose of this is a practical one, is to try and share with you, to give to you, some of the themes and some of the keys, if you like, so that you can read the Bible as one whole book. Because it's always a mistake to think um, there's a great big wedge between the Old and the New Testament, so it is divided, but it is one revelation of God. Mm -hmm. Starts off in a very primitive, misty, murky sort of way, not very clear. And, and as you get to the New Testament, it becomes much brighter and lighter. And um, but what I'm trying to, <coughs> to walk you through is what are the key things you need to understand to unlock, as it were, that holistic understanding of the Bible. And there are some key teachings in the Bible which are just themes really, that go right through. And we talked about one of them last week, that last week, last time I spoke here, mm -hmm. which was Sabbath, the Sabbath, which mm -hmm. wasn't so much about the Sabbath day in the sense of the Lord's Day, that's the earthly representation of something bigger, which was <coughs> The fact that the creation week is six days and then the seventh day, the Sabbath day, was a picture, a theme that was used throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews. It's a, 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 a type of our salvation, that the Sabbath is the dark destiny of the Christian, culminating eventually in the new heavens and the new earth which will be the final Sabbath day where each one of us will, <clears throat> will reign in victory with Christ himself. Um, <clears throat> so as I say, to, well I'm about to say that tonight we're going to focus a bit more than we have so far upon man, Adam and Eve, within this kingdom of Eden in which they were placed. And there are <clears throat> so much that could be said, I know I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of saying too much, I'm going to try and um, not say too much tonight. Um, but I want us to focus now upon man in this garden, what, what is God saying to us and what are some of the keys that, or themes that come flow from that which help us to understand the Bible. But first of all we need to, to read Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 to 17. Genesis chapter 2, <coughs> 1 to 17. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herd of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted, and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, there is Delium and the olive stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same is it that encompass the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest free eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, when we're in these very early, <clears throat> this very early stage of God's revelation in the Bible, most, or a great deal of the revelation is highly symbolic and primitive. And I need to explain what that means. Um, remember one of the earlier sessions of this series I spoke about how the, in the Old Testament it's like um, having the shape of things but without all the colour that you get in the New Testament in fact that was, I did actually make that from John Calvin I found, I found that he wrote some embracing to say that it is actually the Old Testament is is without colour, the New Testament is like shapes all filled in. Mm -hmm. And these early parts of God's revelation are a bit like, um, you know, you don't give a, <clears throat> a three-year-old, um, you know, you don't give him, you don't give a three-year-old Charles Dickens to read, do you? Or, or War and Peace, you give him a picture book. Uh, 
and it's simple and, and it's visual uh, and it's um, you know immature in many ways. That the, the, the more as they get older, they'll be a mature reading and understanding. Well, that we're we're in the sort of nursery, if you like, at the moment in terms of revelation. Um, so it is symbolic very often. And before <clears throat> we can understand what I want to these verses tonight, to any depth at least, we need to understand what a symbol means in the Bible. What does it mean to say something is symbolic? The, f the first thing that I must say before I'm excommunicated by you <laughs> is to say that <clears throat> to say an event or a thing or a person is symbolic, it does not mean that that event or person or event wasn't historically real. Mm. Uh, in Genesis we have real symbolism conveyed in actual things. They're historically true. But the point about a symbol in Scripture is that what the truth that they convey is so much more important than the fact that it actually happened. Mm. And I need to explain that as I go on. So it's not necessary to deny the historical reality of something to say that it is acting as a symbol in Scripture. So with that in mind, in this very early part of Scripture, we need to, to explain positively what is a symbol, because you do need to understand that to, as you go through the Old Testament particularly. So a symbol is part of God's self-revelation to us, which is not expressed in words, or at least not predominantly expressed in words. A token, a, a, a symbol, is like a token. A token serves as a visible representation of a fact. So if you had done something uh, really good um, at home, and you know, your mum and dad could you know, gather you around the tea table and they could give a long speech about how good you've been, or they could give you a present and say, this is a token of my appreciation that the that token well, it could be a, a, a handbag or it might be or, or a, 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 some money would be a visible representation a symbol of what was meant to be conveyed in terms of facts and that's what a symbol is it's, it stands for something bigger than itself and so they are therefore means of instruction and they're also a sacramental, that means they, a bit like the Lord's Supper, um, assures us of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for us and will be coming again. Um, a symbol, in, well, at this stage in the, in the revelation of God, a symbol isn't always, you know, because of where you are in history, always looking forward, assuring 
that what God has promised will happen. So it's a kind of so that <clears throat> a symbol can be thought of as a prefiguration or an assurance, a certainty that the truth or promise that that symbol conveys will happen, will take place, will come to pass. So in Genesis 1, chapters 1, 2 and 3, I would argue, nearly all of the revelation is symbolic. It actually happened, but the revelation is largely communicated not through words, but through symbols. Another way of saying that is that each symbol, each symbol conveys <clears throat> um, a truth or a principle which has implications for the rest of the Bible. So tonight, I want to talk about, to start to talk about some of these symbols. We're going to take two tonight. Uh, um, you could take a number, or probably only do three in all. Um, and we do need to talk a bit more about what it means that man is made in the image of God, but I'm going to park that for tonight. So, in our mind's eye now, um, let us, all in our minds, be at this point where Adam and later Eve are in the kingdom of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, where we read in, in chapter 2 verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So that's where we're thinking now. Just imagine Adam in this Garden of Eden. And it's worth it's worth just thinking of it about what that must have been like. Um, and, and, and to make some observations about this garden, because that will help us to understand the two symbols I'm going to go on to explain in a minute. Obviously, Eden was the was like the original homeland of man. Um, but it wasn't only man's dwelling place, it was also God's dwelling place. It was his footstool on earth. It was his earthly temple. We talked in the previous session about how the earth, and in particular the Garden of Eden, is an earthly replica of that heavenly temple. And it was God's dwelling place and man's dwelling place. In other words, man did not need to go on a long pilgrimage or a long journey to find God. God was with man. It was like the first, you could have called it Emmanuel land, if you like. It was God with us, literally. And man was in the house of God. And in Eden, there was this <clears throat> localised, visible presence of God. It was the same, what's known in theology as this theophany, or this theophany glory, which we first come, came across in Genesis 1 verse 2, where the Spirit of God was hovering, fluttering in the Hebrew, over the waters. 
Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. And, and we, we will need to have a session at some point on, on theophany because that again is, is throughout, particularly the, well, the exclusion of the Old Testament. But this cloud of glory, you might want to call it the cloud of glory, this theophonic glory settled in the Garden of Eden. Now God was in God's hope, God dwells in heaven on his throne, but he is able, and we read of it in many places in scripture, to localise his presence on earth. Mm. And uh, we read of that many times in the Old Testament. Um, think of it when, even when the Lord Jesus was baptised, that was that localised form of glory. When he was, the Lord Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, the glory of God came down the upper room and on the day of Pentecost, that amazing theophonic, localised coming down of the Holy Spirit. So this is not unusual in Scripture. But in Eden there was this glory cloud, this um, theophonic, localised glory all the time. Put in another way, um, we could say the Shekinah glory dwelt in that garden of Eden, the glory of God. And so man's home was hallowed ground. It was the original holy land, if you like. There's never been more of a holy land than, than that. Um, it was set apart as the site of God's special presence. And I'm emphasising all of this because it emphasises, doesn't it, the dreadfulness of sin. Mm. To have all of that, to live in a home like that, mm. in a planet like that, where you are literally, you don't have to go and find God, you don't have to um, even go to church. God is there in this amazing way, and, and yet, and we'll come on to this later on, maybe not tonight, but the, the, the dreadfulness of sin, the sinfulness of sin, mm. to sin in that atmosphere. Mm. You see, in a way, sin is always sin, but when you sin in the visible, felt presence of God, it's something, a terrible thing. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in the Acts of the Apostles? The Holy Spirit was so real, so close, you could, you know, that being irreverent, it's almost as if you could reach out and, and touch God. And yet they lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure in, in, in Christian history, people have done the same sin, maybe in a different form, and they haven't been killed. They haven't had to be. Um, picked up by the young men of the church and buried, buried outside. But the point was they were sinning in the face of the felt, visible presence of God. And that's what Adam and Eve did. Um, so this <clears throat> Eden was an amazing, amazing thing. In Ezekiel, in, in 28 and verse 13, 
Ezekiel calls it the garden of God. That's interesting, isn't it? The garden of God. Isaiah says in, in Isaiah 51 verse 3, For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden. And her desert, listen to this, her desert like the garden of the Lord. This was the garden of the Lord. When, when you read of the garden of Eden, I hear certain, nearly always it's about Adam, it's, it's Adam and Eve's gardens, where it was there, where Adam was placed. But it's the garden of the Lord. It was his garden, his world. And this is God's world. We live in it, but it's his world. Mm. Um, Eden was a very special place. We know it was a very special place because of the effort God went to to guard the sanctity of this holy place after man fell into sin. Um, in Genesis 3 verse 24 we read that he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden Cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You see, sin, sinful man could not come back into that garden under any circumstance. Mm. Um, Eden was the genuine theo theocratic kingdom, theocracy. Do you know that? Not a democracy, a theocracy. Well, it was a, a theocracy is a kingdom under the direct rule of the living God. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, this was the only kingdom known. It was a theocratic kingdom. Um, and it was a pure theocracy. That is to say, the land and the people of the land are in a special religious relationship to God. Mm -hmm. And that, that religion is defined through a covenant, which I know try to explain later on. To the kingdom people in Eden were God's covenant children. And they were set apart as God's holy family. And it bore the character of the holy house of God because it was the sanctuary of God himself. And we know it was lost, but in redemption, In the first place, very imperfectly as it turned out, Israel, as an acting or serving as a type, was a theocratic kingdom, serving typologically as the church of Jesus Christ, where we now, we now, and this is so important to understand, are a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a peculiar people. We are under the direct rule of God. I wonder if we really understand that, and really live like that. Where his reign, his rule, his wishes, his will, his desires, his plans, his purposes are supreme. Mm. Above ours, Well, in a way, that's a false way of putting it because what God does is something so clever. What he does 
is that he changes our desires so that obedience to him doesn't become a burden because we end up just doing what we want because what we want is what he wants. Mm -hmm. And so when God says obey me, it's not like um, we often think a taskmaster trying to force you to do something against your will. God's saying to you, go and do what you want because what you want is the desire I put into you. Mm -hmm. And that's not hard, is it? Mm -hmm. Jesus said, come unto me, will ye that labour and rest? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You see, that's the Christian life. If we think the Christian life is forcing our nature somehow to, to obey God's will, and every day is a grind and a struggle and, and a fight against all... You know, I know the old man is still within us, but we've got, we're meant to be new creatures mm. with a new principle of life. And the Holy Spirit's groaning within us and his desires are within us so God is calling us to obey not against our natures but in line and in sync with our new nature I don't know if that made sense but you know let's not think of a Christian life as some kind of constant um giving up of things that we want to do because really we should, we should be wanting to do what God wants. We should be keeping in step with the Spirit. <clears throat> um, so that was the environment in which man first lived. This theocratic kingdom Because I want us to understand what sin is. 
God placed man in this garden and he gave him absolutely everything. He gave um, he provided for their minds and for their bodies. Every type of variation of food was there for their enjoyment. The, the, you know, it wasn't just like a set menu A in Chinese. It was you could have a different meal every night and every meal. Every type of food, every delicious type of food, God provided for them. And he provided for their minds. Um, he provided beauty. It was a paradise with everything to, to fulfill their inquiring minds. They could go on, you know, they could wake up and, and say, well, let's go on this adventure today. And they could, they could discover a new part of Eden. They could trek for miles and they discover new vistas of beauty that they'd never seen before. They're everything to stimulate their mind and their learning and their growth. Worlds unknown, they could beauties to discover. Every physical pleasure abundantly provided for as well. And God himself in covenant union with them as their God in this holy land. And, and this is so crucial to the rest of what I'm going to say, and with the promise of even better things to come. Can you believe? I emphasise that because when we talk about sin, I sometimes think we don't realise what we mean, what it means. To sin in the face of all of that, even when you don't have a fallen nature, when you are when you are created without a fallen nature, what is what's the sinfulness of sin, the wickedness of sin? It's no wonder it brought death mm. and all the destruction, because to sin in the face of that is something else, isn't it? And so, with that background and that description of Eden, I want us to come now to the first two symbols that God uh, uses to reveal truth uh, to us um, in this garden. Try to remember what I said earlier about what a symbol is. I'm not saying that this is uh, not... What I'm saying is, is that these trees were real trees. You could climb them. Well, you shouldn't. <laughs> Theoretically, they were, you could see that they were real trees, but the point is, that wasn't the point. They were acting as symbols of truth, as we'll now go on to explain. So it says, <clears throat> let me find the right verse here. Um, Out of the ground, <clears throat> out of the ground, made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. We talk about that, and then he goes on to say, 
the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So in a central point in the garden amongst all the glorious trees of Eden are um, God calls these two symbol trees or these two symbolic trees to grow. Tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They need to be taken together, but for, our, for my brain at least, we need just to take them individually first. Um, there, are mil- there are probably millions and certainly thousands of trees, but these two trees, as I said, were symbolic. They were different. They were signs, if you like, of something really important. So first of all, let us consider the symbol of the tree of life. Now, um, this is not, you can you know, forget what I'm about to say if you wish, because it is rather conjecture, but I'm, I'm fairly confident in my mind that, that man was able to identify these two trees easily from all the other trees. Logical the tree, this tree of eternal life, this tree of life, I suspect had um, some visible form of glory to distinguish it from all the other trees. Maybe something of the glory of God made it shine in some way so that it was obviously to Adam and Eve the tree of life. Um, the same is probably true with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Certainly it's the case that um, this tree of life was a very powerful tree. We read of that um, in Genesis 3.22, that after a man had fallen, um, God, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. I don't fully understand what that means, but I, it's clearly the case that this tree, well, God himself was saying that man should not get to this tree. Um, because it would mean that they would live forever. And so we deduce from that verse that man had not eaten of the tree of life as yet. Although no, we don't really have a specific prohibition. Um, but it seems reasonable to assume that man understood the significance and meaning of the tree and understood that his partaking of the tree was not for now but something for later on that it was reserved for a future time and for a future purpose. And that's why Adam and Eve have not taken of this tree of life. And that will become a bit clearer and clearer as we go on. And when we get, and we also see from chapter 3.22 that um, Which we've just read. 
that man had lost his right and opportunity to eat of the tree of life. God sealed off that garden, he sealed off that tree to man. Man had lost his opportunity to eat of that tree of life. And it was this tree especially that led to the security measures that God had to put in place in chapter 3 and verse 24, namely the caravans and the flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So this was such an important symbolic tree. What does it mean? What did this tree of life symbolize? It was often said that it was, you know, some people say it was just a tree of life. It means uh, it was symbolizing the fact that life comes from God and that man should live in fellowship with God, that life consists in near and nearness to God. And all that is true. But it can't be that because man already had all, all of that. Man was already in that relationship with God. Um, some people say, well, it, it means that they would never die and just live forever. Well, again, it's, it's, it's partly the case, but it's far more than the promise of endless existence. Man, man was not subject to death and decay. Anyway, um, but if all that the tree of life promised was unending life, well, it was almost like giving them what they already had. Endless life, in any event, um, is guaranteed, even to those subject to the second death in Revelation in the lake of fire. They're going to have endless life. Not a life you want, but ongoing endless life isn't much in of itself. It could be a curse or a blessing. So, what is this tree of life symbolising? And, and this is where um, this is where I need you to try and really try and get your heads around this. I think I said to Lee when we were. One time we were, we were out together that actually in, when you're preaching or teaching, those who are listening to you are far more important than you because if, if, you, don't, if you don't have people listening, there's no preaching, mm. there's no teaching. And uh, there's, there's a ministry of listening, <laughs> listening because there's no point otherwise. The whole point is that we're all learning together. And I don't know that was a uh, digression, but. I, I, I know that some of this is, is heavy duty, but we can understand this next point and will help us, I think. What we need to understand about this tree of life is that it symbolised the highest, the ultimate progression that man could make. What I mean by that is that the best form of life, the highest form of life, was not given to Adam and Eve on a plate by virtue of creation in Eden. It wasn't as if they had everything God could give and there was nothing more that God could give all at once. Most people talk about Eden in that way. 
That isn't true. We, we, we spoke about that last time, how the Sabbath was like an eschatology. An eschatology is a direction, direction of travel, where it's the, it's the ultimate plan of God for man. And the tree of life symbolizes the best that God can give to, to, to a man and to, and to humanity. It's God to explain. Um, as I say, Eden is often spoken of uh, as the be all and end all, and that really to be a Christian uh, is to get back to, the, to Eden, to get back to the point where Adam and Eve were before they sinned. That isn't true. Mm -hmm. We're a, a, a Christian, even you and I now tonight are in a better position mm -hmm. than Adam and Eve were before they sinned. And that's a big statement, but I'll I tell you why it's true. It's true because they could fall. They could fall and be lost. If you're a Christian, you cannot fall and be lost. Mm -hmm. You're justified by... So you're, you're more secure in God mm -hmm. than Adam and Eve before the fall. It's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. Milton, uh, in his famous poems, Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, it, it was great poetry, but it was absolutely awful theology. You see, his, his other point was is that it's to get back, it's to regain paradise, regain Eden. And the ultimate purpose and journey of a Christian is not to get back to the original situation of Adam and Eve in the garden. And that although man was created perfectly good, he could be raised to a still higher level of perfection. Mm -hmm. now, <clears throat> now, you could say, and I wouldn't blame you, that that doesn't make sense. If something is perfect, it's perfect. How can you make something that is perfect more perfect? How can you improve on perfection? Well, I can tell you. It, it, let me put it in this way. You can improve something that is perfect by ensuring that perfect thing will always remain perfect. Perfect not just for a moment, not just for a period of time, but unchangeably perfect. You see, that's the difference. You can be, something can be perfect and then change later. The promise that the tree of life held out to man as a sacrament was to advance from goodness as yet unconfirmed to a permanent or confirmed goodness and blessedness that could never change. But more simply, Adam and Eve were sinless. They had never sinned, but they still could sin. Mm. They did sin. What was held out by the tree of life was to move from that position to a position where they could no longer sin, where it would be impossible for them to sin. 
where their perfection would be guaranteed. That's eternal life. In broader biblical revelation, what we're talking about here is moving to the end point of our salvation as Christian believers. That point in theology which is called glorification. Where the Christian believer is given a new body and enters into the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells and in which there is no sin. Sin is burning and bubbling and being destroyed in the lake along with the with Satan and the devils and, uh, and all the wicked in the lake of fire. And there is no sin. It's gone. It's purged. Mm -hmm. And if Adam and Eve had, and we'll go on to, to talk about this now, if Adam and Eve had done what God had expected, they would have moved from this point of, of sinlessness, yes, and goodness, yes. But they would have moved to glory. They would have been glorified to the point where they would no longer be able to sin because they would have entered into the glorification that we one day in God in Christ would enter. This is what the tree of life symbolised. And so consummated glory. This glorification is depicted in this symbolism. We read of it in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 in the, the letter to the church at Ephesus where it says he that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst the paradise of God. You see, it's, it's enduring in this life, in this church, enduring the persecution, fighting the flesh, the world, and the devil. But there's going to come a day when we will be glorified, where our, our gradual, progressive sanctification comes to an end point because we see Jesus face to face, and when we see him, we will be like him. That is what the tree of life symbolised. That was the hope and the promise. We read also in, in, in Revelation that in the main street of the New Jerusalem, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nation. You see, the new Jerusalem is eternal life. Mm. Um, we're going to be eating of the, of, of the trees, of the fruit, of the medicine, of, of, the, of the healing. There'll be no illness, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no death, there'll be no tears. Mm. And we'll walk down that main street and on either side there'll be a canopy uh, of glorious healing trees. Because we would have entered eternal life. And so, that was the tree of life. Now, I separated that tree out from the tree of the knowledge of, 
of good and evil, but they need to be seen together. Uh, and we're going to go on now to the second symbol, tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They need to be taken together because, well, let's, let's track back. What did God say about this tree? Verse 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Obedience to God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the gateway, the means of progression whereby man could partake of the tree of life. If man had obeyed God's instruction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have passed from this Edenic perfection to this confirmed and unchangeable glorification. I don't know how quickly, because there are other there were other um, commands that God had, had given Adam, such as to um, fill the earth, the cultural mandate, as it's called, mm. to build God's kingdom on earth, to spread Eden out into the world, and it may have been many, many many, many years before he would have entered glorification, but what a difference it would have made isn't it, to, to do God's work um, in, on the earth without sin in your heart. Mm -hmm. would it, he would have let it be joy. There wouldn't have been any weeds or thistles or um, death, mm -hmm. disappointments. He, he, would have, he would have worked for God and Building God's work in, in city on earth, but without sin. And when the time of God's choosing, he would have entered in to the glory through that obedience. And so, another way we could say is that if he had obeyed God, he would have entered into the Sabbath day, he would have entered into Sabbath rest. That promise, that end point of all human history. Eternal life would have been sealed to him. And man's work was to obey God in this, um, this period, which is, which is often called the probation, this period of time when man was under a, a test the probationary period, we don't know how long it was, where there's only one tree, humans, God says, that you're not allowed to touch, you've got thousands of them. And they give you all the meals you want, and they give you all the adventures, and I've given you everything. And the one thing I ask is that you don't eat that from that tree. I don't know whether there was any more explanation to them. 
I don't I, I, it didn't appear that there was. But the point was, even, even if it was an arbitrary thing, or it was, it was seen by Adam and Eve as an arbitrary thing, their duty was to obey God. And God, and sometimes, you know, in life, you know, and as a Christian, we're called just to obey God. <laughs> we may be told to do something, we haven't got a clue what God's doing, or what it means, or why we can't do this, or why we should do this. But, you know, our task is just to obey. Mm -hmm. Because, and that's all God wanted from, from those who had created was just obey me in this one thing, this one outward thing. I mean, that isn't quite true because man as a creature was expected to obey God all the time, but there was this specific instruction which was linked specifically as a, as a gateway to the tree of life. Obey me in this one thing and then you'll be able to eat of the tree of life. on the nature of the, of the power of this tree, what, what knowledge it would have imparted. Um, but the main point was that in this period of history, however long this period of time was, man was meant to, was under this injunction relating to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now what I want to say next is really important. This period, this test, this probation is one of these keys that you need to understand the Bible. Um, and we're going to talk about it, but not, not tonight too much. All I intend to do now is to just highlight it to you and draw out the implications and, and, and next time when we turn to the symbol of the serpent. But this period of time is known in, in Reformed theology as the covenant of works. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, verse 2. I think I said right at the beginning of this series, everything I say is nothing none of it is original. It's all from the Reformed faith. It's all, all of this is perfectly accessible. The first covenant, it says, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. That's basically what I've been talking about this one. That's why the Puritans are better preaching than the moderns. I think they could say in a few sentences, which they could be, have no one more to say. You see, some people aren't too keen on the phrase covenant of works because the word covenant isn't in this part of the Bible. 
That's true, but all the ingredients are coming to them. There's there's God, there's man, there's, mm. there's prohibition, there's a promise of reward for certain things being there. I mean, there's a covenant in every way. If you don't like the word covenant, it's not too long, but but the point is <clears throat> be clear and subtle in your mind that um, Adam and Eve had a real and viable opportunity to pass the test God had given and pass to eternal life. And as we'll go on to see next time, they failed, they sinned, and eternal life was lost. Mm. You see, I want to say this in conclusion, heaven, uh, you probably misunderstand me in the first part of this, but heaven has to be earned. It has to be earned. Mm. Someone has to pass this test. Mm. Someone has to obey the law of God. We can't do it anymore mm. because of Adam and Eve. But it still has to be passed. It still has to be, heaven has to be won. Mm. The blessings of this tree of life have to be one. The first Adam failed. We can't do it. But the New Testament talks of a second Adam. Mm. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who through his passive and through his active obedience obeyed the Lord mm. and won eternal life for you and I. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish and that's one of the keys we, want, we cannot understand what Christ did unless we understand the covenant of works or the covenant of life some people call it what he was doing through all his life was fulfilling what Adam and Eve should have done we need to understand that in his temptation in the wilderness he was fulfilling a covenant of works mm. in his life. In all that he did, he obeyed the law and he won for us the fruit of the tree of life. And that is yours tonight, mm. if you know him. Amen. Amen. Amen.